1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The word of the Lord. Father, help us to have clear minds and clear hearts to not just hear the word, but to be doers of the word. That this word brought to us by you, your word, might change us. Thank you, Father, for this time that we have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning, everyone. And uh, as Pastor Andrew said, my name is Kuni Hoda, and um, I serve as a missionary in Japan with Mission to the World in Nagoya, and have been with you here at Christ Church since August of this year. Um, glad to serve and worship uh, amongst you during this strange time, uh, and um, glad to be here. And so as we look back on 2020 here on, um, on this last Sunday of the year, it is a pleasure to open up the Word of God together. As you look back on your last year, uh, did any of you pick up any new hobbies or perhaps ramp up some old hobbies of yours with all the extra time that we have had at home? <laughs> Drawing, reading, playing an instrument, computer programming, uh, I loved all the beautiful artwork and the writing that we have compiled in the Creative During COVID book. One entertainment reporter writing in September of this year, reflecting on kind of these uh, pandemic times, he said that the pandemic has turned everybody, everybody into gamers. Now, some of you in here may say, well, no, 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 that's not me. I'm not a gamer. And that's probably true. Um, maybe this is a bit of an exaggeration. But the, the, the global market for gaming, uh, the evidence is clear that there has been a massive, massive increase in video games. Um, in the U.S., as of September, $29.4 billion of video games were sold, which is a 23% increase from the previous year. 
Nintendo, one company alone, it's a global you know, Japan-based video game company, reported $1.4 billion in profit during the second quarter, which is five times more than that time period last year. So an immense increase, right? A lot of this uh, is traced back to one particular video game called Animal Crossing. Some of you here in the room may know Animal Crossing. Uh, I used to play an older version of it, um, but it's, it's essentially this, this uh, social simulation game. Um, you're in a village and you can do all sorts of things. And it was the highest selling game in Japan, and for a while, the highest selling game in the US, the second highest sold game in all of 2020. I find it very interesting that it was this game, Animal Crossing, that catapulted this, you know, th that turned all of us into video gamers. Um, it's a game where you, you know, build, you cultivate this village, uh, you can go fishing, you can plant an orchard, um, you can uh, harvest your fruits and vegetables without worry of weeds or insects eating up your crops or anything like that. Um, it's this idyllic kind of utopia, right, where you can do all the things of regular life without worrying about any of the conflict or any of the trouble. Um, and also, you can do this with other people online. And so you can pick and choose just the right amount of fellowship, the right amount of community that you want and that you don't want. So probably this game filled a need that a lot of people were feeling during times of social isolation, that they could interact with their friends um, that they couldn't meet with in person. But I think there was probably another reason why this game became so, so popular around the world because it was a way that people could disconnect with reality, to disconnect with the conflict, the sadness around them. Right, just for a moment, you can jump into this virtual reality, which is really an illusion, right? A fantasy of a perfectly happy world without sin, without suffering, and certainly without a virus. It became, perhaps for some people, a sort of a coping mechanism that would convince them for a moment that there was peace on earth, in fact, that all was right in the world. It's just me, just my fresh produce, my fishing rod, my house with the perfect, perfect aesthetic, right? No conflict. Does any of this ring true for, for you guys? I'm not saying that Animal Crossing or video gaming is you know, bad and, and none of us should ever do this, right? I, I play video games. Um, however, consider for a moment how you interact with your video games. Do you treat them like a coping mechanism to distract you from reality? Of course, we do this in many ways. It's not just video games. Oftentimes, we're quick to self-medicate our anxiety or when just the, the weight of life feels so heavy. It comes in the form of an itch or an urge, just one more cookie, just one more episode, just one more drink, just one more swipe of the credit card. We turn these gifts from God into vehicles of momentary deception to, to take our eyes off of kind of the hard things of life and just pick this fleeting, fleeting uh, pleasure. But as soon as that sugar high passes, as soon as you know, the rush passes through, we're left with that same darkness, same heaviness that plagued us before. So by choosing that fleeting comfort, we actually deny ourselves 
take our eyes off of the comfort that God lays before us. Taking one week today, uh, one, one day, to look at a passage from Paul's first letter to the church uh, in Thessalonica. Ancient Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia and actually still is today. And in modern day is a city about same size as Grand Rapids. So this is a certainly historical city and a city that has had a lot of um, uh, economic prosperity throughout the ages. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy go to this city that has not heard the gospel and they begin reasoning with the people, with the philosophers, um, with the Jews and the Greeks. They reason with them from the scriptures pointing that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, was the Messiah that everyone had been waiting for. And it says that many devout Greeks believed. We can see this in Acts 17. Many devout Greeks believed and many women who were in positions of leadership and power in their midst. And so you see this church that was born, this mostly Gentile church. We know that it was mostly Gentile because the Jews were very upset that Paul and the others were there. They chased them out of the city, right? And so this church starts from this, these humble beginnings, and we read, if we follow the story, that this church became witnesses to the whole region of Macedonia. It says that the whole of Macedonia and the whole of surrounding regions knew and heard, heard and came to know the gospel. It's amazing, amazing story. However, they were also a church that doubted, that struggled, that felt the weight of sadness discouragement, the seductions of the surrounding culture. They were tempted to turn their eyes from the truths of the gospel and to lose sight of who they were and whose they were and to be overcome by the darkness. We can read this in their letter. So they knew that Jesus, yes, was born in the major and was the Messiah brought for them, that he was um, the, the Savior who lived and died and was raised again for them. And they knew that Jesus was coming again, right? They knew that Jesus was coming again to make all things right. Yet, they were anxious and grieving too. And they wondered, they doubted, whether those that had already passed away from their midst, what was going to happen to them? So as this church was growing, as people were coming to faith, as death came to their people, right? This is part of the natural cycle of life. They wondered and they doubted, what's going to happen to so-and-so if they are now asleep, they are now dead when Jesus returns? And so Paul comes to them with a message of comfort and of encouragement and reminds them of the promise of what they have come to believe. He says, I do not want you to be uninformed so that you won't grieve as some do without hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again and that we too, through Jesus, will rise again. God will bring uh, him to us and us to him. Right? This, is, this is the promise. But he also uses this as a teaching moment. He says, this is the promise for you, but you live in this world that 
is deceived, that is living in darkness, that is choosing to be asleep and to be drunk rather than to acknowledge the reality of this world, that it is God's and it is coming to an ultimate end, right, where God will judge the living and the dead. You live amidst this world that is deceived and is deceiving itself of these things. And so he uses this as a teaching moment to them to expose the challenge of living in this world while waiting for Jesus' return. But it's also a moment to give them hope, to give them encouragement. And it's interesting, Paul says to them, I don't actually have to write this to you. He says, you're already doing this, but I'm going to write it to you anyway. We know that none of us ever grow out of our need for encouragement. And so, no matter where you're at in your journey with the Lord, would you uh, receive this message um, from Scripture today? We're going to take a look at how Paul encourages them, and even us, in three ways, through the challenge, through the call, and through the promise. First, we see the challenge that we must not be deceived. Paul paints this image of a people who are living in the nighttime, right? And these people, in verse 3, say there is peace and security, right? They, they say that this world is good and we can attain good in this world, that we can achieve that peace, that security that we long for, and in fact, we have it, or it's just around the corner. If only we do this or we do that, right, we'll, we'll get there. And so this is what the, the people of that day Right, uh, Thessalonica under Roman rule was saying, this is probably a, a Roman kind of catchphrase, propaganda, if you will, to say that there is, uh, there is a perfect utopia under Roman rule, that you'll have aqueducts with water, you'll have roads, you'll have prosperity, you'll have everything you could ever desire. It's better than anything you had when you weren't under our rule. However, this probably fails to recognize that that might be an experience of a small echelon of society, maybe the rich and the powerful, or if you're a Jew, for the tax collectors, for those that bowed the knee to Rome. But it wasn't the experience of everyone. It wasn't the experience of the common man, right? Because the common man and woman were the ones that were subjugated and were suffering to build this Roman prosperity. And so it was a veneer of peace, a veneer of security. But it wasn't just Rome who did this, right? We know that actually Israel, the people of God, did this too. Jeremiah writes this in uh, Jeremiah 6, 13, about Israel. He says, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. They weren't even blushing over their sin. He says, Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Right, justice is all things right and good upheld and all things wrong and evil corrected. There is no peace and no security without both of these things. And so they became content, Rome, Israel, they became content with a veneer of peace 
when things were actually rotting just beneath the surface. Now, just until I came to Grand Rapids, I was living and serving in Japan, the ministry called Christ Bible Institute that uh, seeks to equip Japanese uh, people for uh, the Christian ministry, particularly through the seminary and also through all sorts of lay training. But we face this issue in Japan and know it to be, to be a, a big problem there as well. When people think Japan, they think Nintendo, they think Pokemon, they think sushi, they think people who are so collected and humble and polite, right? the best customer service in the world. And yet, when you actually live there, or for a Japanese person, if you just ask them, if you just peel back that outer layer, it's a culture of emptiness, of sadness, of loneliness, right? If you ride a subway in Tokyo, right, it is one of the most populous cities in the world, and you would expect to be bustling with life, but you ride that subway in the morning during that morning commute, and you'll see a sea of people dressed uh, similar to how I'm dressed right now with dead expressions, just dreading day, dreading life, maybe sucked into their smartphone, but without life, without joy, hope for the day. And so this peace, right, that they call, it's a veneer. It's not just Japan, though. It's not just the nations out there who don't know Jesus, but it's also us, if we're honest with ourselves. One, I want to share two quotes, one modern and one old, but one um, a woman writing in uh, the New York Times, uh, her name's Tish Harrison Warren, uh, who's an Anglican priest in Pittsburgh, um, but she published this article, an op-ed, uh, just at the beginning of Advent this year. She says this, American culture consists that we run at breathless pace from Sugar Lay celebration to celebration. Three months of Christmas to the Super Bowl, Mardi Gras, Valentine's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Fourth of July, and on and on. We suffer from a collective consumerist mania that demands we remain optimistic, shiny, happy, and having fun, fun, fun. But life isn't a Disney cruise. The tyranny of relentless mandatory celebrations leaves us exhausted and often, ironically, feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from holiday blues, and I wonder whether this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer. The collective lie that through enough work and enough positivity, we can perfect our lives and the world. Even our pursuit of peace and happiness without true acknowledgement of the hard facts of life will leave us emptier than when we started. Isn't that true? Another from John Calvin. Um, this is from Calvin's Institutes in his section on the Christian life, which was actually just published as a separate little booklet um, just this year, and definitely recommend it. Um, but he writes this, We all throughout our entire lives want to act as though we were longing for heavenly immortality and striving urgently after it. Right? He's talking about us. He's talking about Christians who are, who are walking with Jesus and looking towards heaven. Right? He's talking about us. But examine the plans and pursuits and actions of whomever you wish, and you'll find them to be entirely earthly. Thus we see our stupidity. It's a harsh word. 
our minds, having been dulled by the blinding glare of empty wealth, power, and honor, can see no farther than these things. And our hearts, burdened with greed, ambition, and lust for gain, can rise no higher than these things. In some, our entire soul, in, entailed in the enticements of the flesh, seeks its happiness on earth. Right, he wrote this 500 years ago, rings true today. This is us. Right, this is us. And so we misinterpret the circumstances around us. We think this is all there is, all that I want, all that I can achieve is in this life here and now. Even if we don't confess it with our words, is that not where our hearts go if we leave it unchecked? And so we misinterpret the age or the circumstances, but we also misinterpret the time, the age. We think that this is the night. We think that, that this is all there is. And so we do nighttime things. We sleep when we should be awake, he says. And we uh, give ourselves over to drunkenness when we should be sober and waiting, it says. I think this sleep and this drunkenness are two images of really the same thing. Right? What's in common between sleep and drunkenness is your subdued senses, right? When you're asleep, you're, you're not interacting with the world around you, right? Um, and that, that's also the case when you're drunk. <laughs> you're not able to interact with, um, with the things coming at you in the way that you're able to when you are uh, wide awake. And so we are actively, by choosing drunkenness, and passively, by being asleep, we're actively and passively deceived about our circumstances, about the world. I want to list off a few different ways that we might do this. Passively, by sleeping, we become lulled to sleep by the various stories and philosophies of our world, right? By materialism, secularism, by hedonism, just a, a, a uncontrollable pursuit of pleasure, right? By corporate greed, and by false religion, maybe by nationalism that actually hinders our, our global vision for the gospel, right? All of these uh, different things uh, even if we don't confess them ourselves, it is, the, it, is the, it is the soup, the cultural soup that we live in, right? By ignorance, right? Some people just don't know the gospel. They don't know the truth. And so they're lulled to sleep by their ignorance. That's why we go to, into our neighborhoods, into our cities, and to the nations to, to bring the gospel of Christ. We're lulled to sleep by our busyness, by the tyranny of the urgent, to go, 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 go to the next thing. And we don't stop to think about where we are in God's story. We're lulled by grief, right? Life is so hard at times. And when it hits us, when it hits us, sometimes we're knocked down on our back. Right? And when we're there, when we're there and we're unable to look up at the Lord, when we're unable to look forward towards the hope that we have in him, all we see is this dark veil in front of us. We grieve as those without hope. Right? Actively, in our drunkenness, um, right, one, subdued by pleasure. This, this 
this pursuit of happiness that is uncontrolled. That's what um, Tish Warren was talking about in her article. This uncontrollable pursuit of happiness actually leaves us emptier than when we started. Happiness is, is not uh, the ultimate good. We're subdued by distraction. Social media, Netflix, games, gossip, um, anything to distract our minds from what we actually need to be dealing with. And circumstances are so hard. We do need a way to deal with the trials of life. I'm not saying that these things are all bad. However, when we engage with Animal Crossing or social media, uh, with uh, you know, your TV as something to numb you, as something to anesthetize you from the pain, from the anxiety, from the things that this world requires of you, then it becomes something that actually uh, subdues us, that deceives us about the world around us. We're unable to walk in the way that God has called us to. We're unable to fulfill the callings that he has called us to. We're subdued by success just consumed by a drive for achievement in this life, being so short-sighted to the achievements of this world. Oftentimes, all these darknesses, right, pursuit of happiness, success, these things are very flashy, very appealing. There's a reason why we're drawn to them. But in the end, it deceives us. It's interesting that people actually drink alcohol to feel more alive, right? This is a choice that we think will bring us life, bring us happiness. Um, and certainly, there's a place for that. Uh, Psalm, I believe, 104 says, wine gladdens the heart of man. There's certainly a place for that in, uh, in the scriptures. However, we see that when, we're, when we give ourselves over to it, as Paul is talking about in this passage, when you drink, you get drunk, then it actually is what deceives us. It, it's what deadens us. We misinterpret our age where we're at. And this indictment is not only for Rome, not only for Israel, not only for the nations who don't know God, but it's also something that we battle. And so this, here's our challenge. And Paul gives us a call that we must soberly wait says, let us keep awake and be sober. Have a heightened awareness of where we are in God's story, of what is to come, right? That this isn't all there is, that actually we're living for a heavenly kingdom, right? He says, have, live with a heightened awareness that Jesus is coming back. Live as if it were the day, not the night. Tim Keller talking about this, this challenge with what we know to be true, and what we experience, and then doubts coming in. He says this. He says, doubt comes when what your mind knows becomes unreal in your heart because of your experience. He says, doubt comes when your mind knows becomes unreal in your heart because of your experience. In other words, it's not enough simply to know that the modern world is finite and that all our possessions and accolades, right, these are fleeting things. It's not enough just to know that, because when, we, when the rubber hits the road, the rubber hits the road, and we're not living that knowledge, we're not 
owning it. It's not changing the very core of who we are. Doubt comes in. Doubt comes in through experience. I want to address a couple different populations in our church, and I'm not going to hit everyone, so if you're not named, uh, please, you know, I'm not ignoring you. You can think about how this engages with you, but first I want to talk to the kids in the room. Kids, we just had Christmas, right? And probably a lot of you got presents that you were hoping for for a long time, that you had written on your list. You told your mom and dad, your brothers and sisters, your friends that I want this for Christmas. And so on Christmas Day, you wake up at the crack of dawn, so excited, so happy to rip open your presents, and you start opening it up. Now we know that these presents they are presents. They're gifts for us, right? Given to you because your mom and dad, your brothers and sisters, your grandparents, your neighbors, whoever, because they love you. They want you to be happy. They want you to enjoy what you got. And so it's a gift, right? But what happens once we start playing? What happens when your brother and sister or your neighbor wants to play with your toy that you just got? What do we say? Maybe not you, but sometimes I used to say, give it back, or that's mine. It's my present. All of a sudden, what was once a gift given out of your parents' generosity to you, it wasn't even yours. Right? What was once a gift that you got because you uh, are loved, cherished, right? all of a sudden that becomes a possession that you grab hold of and are unwilling to, to share with generosity. Right? As you, you know something to be true, but actually when in the heat of the moment, in our experience, when that truth is not rooted in the way that we live, our awareness, the way that we are, we all of a sudden fall away from it. Right? What about students, young professionals, you may know as you're moving into your vocation or whatever your calling may be that this is given to you to steward for God's glory. You may be going into that with that vision and so you have all these plans for how you're going to do that in whatever job or calling in life. However, when the rubber meets the road, you get your first paycheck, all of a sudden, this is more money than I've ever had and I'm going to buy all of the things. All of a sudden, we become greedy we, we struggle to be generous, right? When actually life hits us in our experience, before we know it, we fall away from the things that we know. Right? We have to live it. And so Paul calls us to live with this heightened awareness, not just to know that Jesus is returning, but to live, with, uh, to live as if awake, to live sober, right? We must live with the truth that Jesus is coming again. This doesn't mean that we necessarily throw away all our possessions or that we can't have any fun, that we throw away all the pleasures of this life. No, you know, we do thankfully receive these things, these blessings that God has given us, but we have to hold them in balance. Going again to uh, Calvin, he says, when we hold these things in balance, I'm paraphrasing, our enjoyment of the blessings of this life, which are God's sweet kindness, as well as in the miserable condition of life, in all its sin, suffering, and frailty. Then we are able to disentangle ourselves, 
to disentangle ourselves from excessive desire for this life, which is our natural inclination. Only when we hold these things in balance are we able to disentangle the deceptions of this world. However, this calling is a high calling, right? It is, um, it's something that is, is a, a heavy burden for us to bear if it were only a calling. It might become a law unto itself, left alone. And we certainly are not very good at fulfilling the law. Right? We can't do it. However, this calling, just as with every calling in the Christian life, comes with a great, great promise, and that's that we will live with him. He says, brothers and sisters, whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are alive or those who have passed away, we will live with him. Yes, we've been called to a certain way of living, yet that is rooted in the great truth that it's not dependent, the fact that we will live with him is not dependent on our performance or ability to live out this, this waiting, this, this awake, uh, sober living, right? He says, this comes after the promise. It's in despite of our inability to perform, actually, that we are given the place in his kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven, we will one day go to him or he will come to us, whichever comes first, but either way we will be with him. And this is because of the gospel, which brings life to dead people. All right, Ephesians puts it this way, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So whether you're alive and fighting in this world or those who have passed away, we will live with him because we're covered in Christ. Paul gives, up, gives us three reasons to back this up real quickly. Firstly, God has not destined us for wrath. Verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath. You poor, needy sinner, unable to fulfill the law yourselves, unable to acquire the righteousness that you need to stand before a holy God, you who are unable to deal with the weight of this world, you poor and needy sinner who deserve the full bearing of the wrath of God, God has not destined you for wrath if you are in Christ Jesus. He delighted, he delighted to spare you and to pour his wrath on his perfect son. God has not destined you for wrath. However, God has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might live with him. Right? And this is a full view of our salvation. Not only are our sins forgiven, in other words, our justification, not only will we 
uh, grow in holiness in this life as we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next, growing in our conformity to Christ, our sanctification, but we will live with him, perfected in glory, never struggling with sin again, all the tears wiped from our eyes in him, in the new heavens and the new earth, our glorification. This is a full view of our salvation, and it is ours. We have obtained it and will experience it fully. And he keeps us. He keeps us, verse 8, with the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, the hope of salvation. He says, having put on This is ours. It has been given to us and we are kept by it. This is the righteousness of Christ which we are clothed with. This is the helmet of the hope of salvation looking forward to this salvation to come that keeps us, that we will, uh, that God will complete the good work that he has began in us until the day of Christ Jesus. And this is all, this is all anchored in our our identity in who we are because we are children of the light. Verse 5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. You are sons and daughters of light. And we aren't called children of light because we are so radiant in our good deeds. Yes, certainly our good deeds do shine forth light, but we can't confuse the cause from the effect We're called children of light because we are sons of the one who is light, and therefore we shine his light through our lives. This is the light who had come into the world and darkness had not overcome, as John says. He's the one who saves us. And so by his Holy Spirit, he renews our mind so that we're not deceived, we're not overcome, we're not entangled by the the narratives of this world, but we may discern what God's will is, as we saw in Romans 12, to discern what God's will is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And he enthralls our hearts to know, to know that in his presence is fullness of joy, his right hands, pleasures forevermore, even when we're racked with anxiety and with doubt, that we can present all of it all of it, that we have a free pass to the throne of grace through God, through prayer, and he will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And so this hope, this hope is ours, right? And this hope does not put us to shame because it has been poured into our hearts by his love, by his Holy Spirit to guard you, to guard you and keep you until Jesus returns. This is the perspective in which we live. This is the, the motivation, the, the assurance that allows us to live soberly in anticipation for Jesus' return. And this is what we return to every time, every time that we fall away. And on this last Sunday, 2020, how are you looking towards the future? What are your hopes, your aspirations As we reflect on the passing year, look forward to 2021. As we think about how to prioritize our time, talents, let's live in sober anticipation for Jesus' return. Because God has not destined you for wrath, 
because God has not destined you for wrath. Did you hear that? Not for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live with him. Let's pray. A Father in heaven, we do thank you for this great story, for the redemption that you have woven throughout this world from not just uh, from the moment of creation, Lord, that you have set this whole world for all our lives on this trajectory towards glory with you. And it's so easy to lose sight of that as we live in this present time. And so God, we receive this encouragement. We receive uh, this word, this good word from First Thessalonians to guard our hearts and minds, to keep us, most of all, to remind us of the salvation that we have in you. Draw us near to you, O Lord, as we prepare for this new year coming, as we prepare for Epiphany Sunday. Lord, what a glorious Sunday. And so God, would you keep us? We want to pray, especially for those suffering in our midst, many ailments, diseases, those who have endured loss of many kinds over this year. God, would you be near to us? Bind our hearts in you because we know that that consolation that Simeon so longed for, that actually it is now ours in Christ. And so, Lord, help us to rest in that. Lord, we want to pray for our community too. As the community is entering into 2020, so many, or 2021, so many don't know of this hope. And so, Lord, send us out. Would you go with us into our communities, into the world, to be bearers of this good news? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.